1: LAist Studios.
0: You're listening to Imperfect Paradise from LAist Studios. I'm your host, Antonia Cerejido. Occasionally, we're gonna bring you an episode that's a little different. Today, a special single episode deep dive with one of our LAist reporters. LEU spent months investigating nursing homes in California and uncovered thousands of people with serious mental illness living in facilities not intended to care for mentally ill patients. Many of these patients are not actually elderly. I've had a patient as young as 19 years old, 22. For people working in these nursing homes, the conditions can feel dangerous.
1: They ran faster and moved better than I did
0: nursing homes
2: have become de facto mental health facilities because they're just not enough places for people to go.
0: That and more coming up on Imperfect Paradise from LAist Studios. LAist reporter LEU spent six months examining complicated federal data to uncover this alarming trend about how nursing homes primarily funded by public dollars have become de facto mental illness treatment centers. Ellie worked with APM Research Lab and the California Newsroom on this investigation. Ellie first broke the news in September. She joins us here on Imperfect Paradise to take us through this issue and bring us through the history of how mental health has been treated here in the state. Hi, Ellie. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So as I was reviewing your investigation, I was really drawn to the story of a licensed vocational nurse you spoke to named Travelle Shantae Jackson. And she experienced a lot of what you uncovered in these reports firsthand. So can you tell me a little bit about her?
2: Yeah, Travel is a nurse who I met who's been in the industry for two decades. She's 49, lives in Hawthorne, and has worked all over Southern California. She's very much a tell-it-like-it-is person.
1: I guess I'm just a little bit of a, I get bored easily. So I've worked in pediatrics, hospice. I've worked in, I have to call it genres.
0: But you met her because she was working at one nursing facility in particular, right? Yes, Hyde Park Healthcare
2: Center. It's a nursing home about 10 miles southwest of LA. Travell, she started working there in March of 2022, and she was doing basic care, you know, helping people with their medications, feeding people, checking on vitals basic nursing care for residents. A lot of nursing home residents need help, you know, with just like daily living activities, getting to the bathroom, showering, eating, that kind of thing. So that's the type of stuff she was used to doing and somewhat doing at the facility.
0: Yeah, but this facility was different than other facilities. Yes. Travell Jackson said, you know, on the outside, this
2: facility looks like just any other nursing home. You wouldn't really think much about it if you walked past it or looked at it. But on the inside, she said most of the patients weren't what you typically think of when you think of a nursing home.
1: Schizophrenic, psychosis, uh, bipolar disorders. Some would be yelling, some would be on lithium. Sometimes patients would be so bad, we'd have to assign just one nurse to that patient all day to sit with them because they'd be so disruptive. And that's how our day went. All the
2: time. She said a lot of people there just were very isolated.
0: And also notably that they weren't elderly folks who are the people that you would expect to see in a nursing home. Like how old were these residents? Yeah, she said most of the residents there were in their 40s, 50s, 60s. So to
2: give you an idea of the average nursing home resident is like in their 70s, 80s. I've
1: had a patient as young as 19 years old, 22. Oh my gosh.
2: So she was used to caring for people with like cognitive issues like dementia.
1: I'd say a 90-year-old woman would probably have episodes of screaming in her dementia.
2: But she was not used to caring for people who were more able-bodied, who had serious psychiatric illnesses.
1: That's different than a psychotic person yelling, screaming, biting, biting, and throwing feces. That is 35. They ran faster and moved better than I did. They were able to climb fences. They were able to fashion weapons out of things. They were able to do a lot of things. You're dealing with so many different behavior issues. Patients running around, screaming, yelling, disrobing, defecating in the hallways on themselves. It was an eight hour adrenaline rush every day. There are no Protocols in place to keep staff from being assaulted. There are times when you are unstaffed and you are the only nurse in a building for hours, for shift upon shift.
0: I mean, put another way, the nurses weren't being trained on how to deal with the patients that they had.
2: That's what Travell said, yeah, that they were, this was not a patient population that they had the training to deal with.
1: There should be additional licensing, there should be additional training, there should be, let's say this, I was orientating a registered nurse to come on as my supervisor. Once she found out that the population was what it was, the lady didn't stay the rest of the ship, she walked out.
2: She said a lot of the people there who did have serious mental illness were quote-unquote regulars and had
1: been there for a while. You know, sometimes I would see someone and I'd, I'd ask them, how did you end up here? All the time. How did you end up here? Where's your family? Some were just too far in their illness to give me a straight answer. It's just sad. And you wonder, I always say, someone has to be looking for you.
0: You know, it's to me, it's really moving hearing Travel talk about this because I obviously understand how it was a very scary situation for her and the other health providers. But I'm curious about for the mentally ill patients themselves, like, how was their care at these facilities? Yeah. I wasn't able to speak directly to any patients
2: there or family members of patients with serious mental illness at the facility. It's very hard to get access to these types of facilities. Mm-hmm. But there have been a number of incidents there in public records. I mean, in one case, a resident left unmonitored and was found with blunt head trauma and in a vegetative state. Oh he was God. missing for 23 days. One thing that Travel told me was that patients with mental illness weren't getting what they needed at the facility. It wasn't the right fit. We did reach out to the company who owned Hyde Park during this time. They didn't get on the phone with us, but in a statement said they were focused on providing a safe environment for patients and staff. They also said they believe they have the training programs to minimize dangerous incidents. But as it turned out, it wasn't just Hyde Park where we were seeing an influx of patients with serious mental illness.
0: Yeah, so like how big of a trend is this? Like how big of a problem is it that people who need mental illness treatment are being routed into nursing homes?
2: Yeah. At first, I was wondering if it was just a few facilities that had this many people with serious mental illness. Turns out it's not just a few. We found almost 100 facilities in the state that over 50 percent of residents there had a serious mental illness. Wow. 50 so percent. Yeah. So like half the, res- you know, half the population. And that obviously changes what kind of facility that is. We also found that overall in the state, one in four residents in a nursing home had a serious mental illness. Bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or psychotic disorder were the diagnoses we looked at. And that number has been rising over the last decade as well. I spoke with Tony Chicotel. He's with the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. He characterized it this way.
1: For most residents with serious mental illness in nursing homes, the nursing home just serve as a warehouse. Keeping them alive, keeping them fed and sheltered and out of the streets and out of people's way.
2: The stark reality is that many nursing homes have become de facto mental health facilities because there are just not enough places for people to go.
0: And that's partly due to, like, the history of how we're funding mental illness treatment in the state, right? Yeah, you have to go back to the early 1950s to kind of understand all of this. Well, we're going to get into that after this break. You're listening to Imperfect Paradise. This is In Perfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Serejido. When we left off, LA's reporter, LAU, told us about Nurse Travel Jackson's experience seeing more and more mentally ill patients come into the nursing home where she was working, and then explained how this is happening all across California. Ellie's investigation found that overall, in the state, one in four residents in nursing homes had a serious mental illness. And Ellie is back to talk through her investigation. How did you
2: learn about this story? So I used to be a health reporter, and I think the pandemic happened, and then like nursing homes were just devastated by COVID. I mean, so many people died, and I was getting a lot of tips during the pandemic about nursing homes like not being prepared or like not testing people. I was looking into a nursing home chain, and I was obviously looking at violations of patient care. I was looking into state issued citations. I noticed that there there were a lot of citations I was seeing involving patients with serious mental illnesses, patients in their 40s, 50s. And I was like, why are people with serious mental illness in these facilities? So then I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the federal government to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services because they keep all this resident data because nursing homes who get that money have to submit this data, and that's the vast majority of nursing homes. And I finally got it back. It was massive amounts of data, if you think about, like, information about all residents in the state of California... Oh, my gosh. ...for 10 years. Like <laughs> So it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I could not even open it on my computer. My Excel kept freezing. But once I finally partnered with the APM Research Lab to take a look at this data, they had the right data programs to open all these documents. I also work with the California Newsroom. And that's when we discovered all these trends.
0: Did you talk to people about just, like, how we got here? Like, what led to this? Yeah, I talked to a lot of experts who say that it's just,
2: it's like a symptom of how we've treated mental health care just as a society, as a country, as a state. And we you kind of have to go back to the early 1950s to kind of understand all of this. You know, back then, people were housed in like what are called asylums or like state-run psychiatric facilities. In 1955, half a million people in the country were living in state-funded And state-run psychiatric institutions. So people would send their family members away and just, like, never hear about them. And back then, there was a movement to start deinstitutionalizing people because there was this consensus that keeping people sort of shut away from the rest of society in these asylums was inhumane. And, like, there were terrible things happening at these facilities, a lot of abuses. In the state, it was a big issue. In In the 1960s, we passed the Lanterman-Petra Short Act, which basically ended indefinite
0: involuntary
2: commitment, which was happening to people like, you know, against their will.
0: And surprisingly, at the national level, JFK actually played an important role in the deinstitutionalizing movement.
2: This was really personal for him. He had an older sister named Rosemary who had disabilities and you know, in her 20s, she had a lobotomy that left her, like, permanently incapacitated. And so he wanted to create a system that helped treat people in, in communities and close to their families. And she—I think she lived in an institution for the rest of her life. Wow. So there was a movement to stop this, right? Yeah. To To, like, get people out of these facilities and into the community and living in the community— at the same time, around the same time, there was a lot of advances in psychiatric medications, which would help manage a lot of symptoms for people with mental illness. And so there was this idea that people can live in the community in in, you know, home like settings with their families and not be shut out, you know. Right.
0: So in the 50s, it was people were in institutions. The idea was, let's get people out of these institutions and put them where? Yeah, I mean,
2: there were supposed to be like community facilities to help care for people with mental illness. Um, there were supposed to be, you know, services to help people live in their home communities.
1: The original policy of closing the state psychiatric hospitals really comes from a good place.
2: I spoke with David Grabowski, he teaches healthcare policy at Harvard.
1: Everybody wants care in the community, and many of these individuals can be effectively and safely cared for in the community if you have those community resources in place to actually do the care. And we dropped the ball on the second part of that. We closed the state psychiatric hospitals in a lot of markets around the country, but we never built that home and and community-based resources for psychiatric populations.
2: But this community mental health system just never fully got funded in a way that was envisioned.
0: So this seems like the federal government was like, we don't want to fund these big institutions, but they didn't provide funding for more community-based programs.
2: Yeah. In 1965, Medicaid is introduced. That's the state and federal like public insurance program. And in it, the law specifically wanted to de-incentivize institutionalizing people. With- with mental illness. And so if you are a psychiatric facility, you can't get federal funding. Many hospitals, for instance, do get Medicaid funding if you have like a physical illness. And the idea was to de-incentivize caring for people in institutions and to help people, you know, incentivize states to care for people in the
0: community. That's like such a wild way of thinking of just being like, if we don't pay for it, like, They'll figure out this like magical way of doing it, but no one ever thought about how it was going to get paid for. It's
2: a big pain point for a lot of state leaders because they say it's prohibited them from being able to pay for treatment facilities.
0: For people with mental illness. So now like a lot of of institutions have become like de facto places for people with mental illness, like you said, jails, hospitals. And of course, now we're talking about nursing homes. I mean, how and how are they actually ending up in the nursing homes? Yeah, so our investigation found that over
2: 90% of people who are in a nursing home end up coming from the hospital. So we know that a lot of people use ERs for care, for primary care, for psychiatric care because it's been I mean ERs have kind of become the ground zero for a lot of society's problems like for if people don't get preventative care, they're ending up in the ER. And mm-hmm. that's what I was hearing from, you know, people who worked in ERs that people with psychiatric issues They've seen a lot of people come into the ERs and then either for a physical issue that was like not being cared for or a psychiatric issue. And then they get hospitalized. And then when it gets time to leave, hospital workers are telling me that there's very few places that can care for people with serious mental illness that seem like a good fit. And I've talked to social workers who said nursing homes, you know, might not be the best fit, but it's like the next best option that they have. And so they'll send people there.
0: After the break, Ellie explains what's being done to address this problem. You're listening to Imperfect Paradise. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. grow with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise all lowercase go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash paradise
1: 274 newly built units have sat empty for more than 60 days i'm nick gerda In my news stories on homelessness, I follow the money, hold officials accountable, and tell you which policies are working, which are not, and how that affects people here in Southern California. I'm proud my reporting for LAist helped fast-track VA housing for veterans in West LA and forced an accounting of millions of taxpayer dollars in Orange County. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism.
0: Welcome back. This is Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Cerejido. Before the break, we were talking to Elias reporter, LU about the history of mental health treatment here in California and how we ended up in this situation where hundreds of nursing homes are taking care of our mentally ill. And Elias is back with us now to talk about what's being done to address how we care for mentally ill patients. One question I have is right now with the system we have in California, what is the best case scenario for people who are mentally ill? It seems like the answer would be complicated, but like from advocates I've talked to, the answer is
2: actually pretty simple. Supportive housing, places where people can, you know, live, get support for their serious mental illness, get case management services, get other sort of wraparound services, but live in a home like community. Is there a lot of that or like where? There are some, there's just not enough. And there have been like board and care facilities that have been closing left and right, especially in LA, just because there's not a lot of funding for them. So a lot of those have been disappearing. So a lot of housing has been disappearing. And I mean, when I think of California, a lot of, a lot of issues kind of stem back to affordable housing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And for people who do need like a little bit more care and are not ready to live independently yet, there aren't enough treatment beds for them either. But I spoke with Jonathan Sharon. He's the former mental health director of L.A. County. And he basically told me if there's more housing, then the people stuck in these treatment facilities can move into housing. And then people who need those treatment facilities can get into those treatment facilities.
1: And what I'm saying to you is if there was enough housing and there's enough support in community, we would be able to pull people out of all of the treatment environments so that there would be plenty of acute beds, plenty of subacute beds or STPs, we wouldn't be jamming up the streets, the jails.
2: People end up being stuck in these institutions because there's nowhere to go. Like a nursing home, I've talked to, I've talked to um, one family member who has her son has schizophrenia and ended up in a nursing home because of a broken bone. This was a couple years ago, but is still there. The bone is healed, but people just end up getting stuck in stuck in these types of situations. And you know, once you're in a nursing home for a while, a lot of people end up losing their housing too. So it just becomes kind of this cyclical, yeah, stuck there. Wow.
0: You alluded to this earlier, but is there a push right now to make the federal government be more responsible for caring for mental illness? There's a lot of efforts like locally,
2: even the L.A. County Board of Supervisors have supported measures so that the federal government would pay for care in these facilities. There's a lot of lobbying going on right now. And then what's happening at the California level? On the state level, the governor's office has been doing a lot on mental health care. They have a plan to expand housing and treatment beds for people with serious mental illness. It just passed the legislature this past summer, and that plan will go to voters in March during the presidential primary. It also includes a bond that would raise money to build and go to these housing and treatment beds. But that plan is controversial because... Some civil rights advocates are concerned that the money will be used towards institutionalized settings. It's just getting people off the streets and kind of out of sight, out of mind, versus housing, which are two separate things, like treatment facilities and living somewhere that you consider home is very different. And they were concerned because in the beginning, when this legislation was first proposed, it said that the bond measure would go to, quote, voluntary unlocked types of facilities. And that language was stripped the last week of the legislature and passed. And so it can go to involuntary type locked facilities.
0: And a locked facility would be like an institution.
2: Yeah. Governor Newsom has said, you know, these facilities, some that he described as like campus-like settings, would not be like quote, institutions of the past, but places where people can heal and thrive.
1: We make sure they're state-of-the-art 21st century regional centers of support at so that we never go back.
2: But I've talked to advocates who say, yeah, that sounds great. But what happens is people just end up getting kind of segregated from the rest of society. They don't have advocates advocating for them. That's when bad things can happen.
0: What's being done to help folks like Travell who are being asked to do work that they weren't trained to do? I've talked to the union of healthcare workers who say, you know, this is something that
2: they've been seeing more and more of their nurses having to serve patients with serious mental illness that they weren't trained to help. And so they've done several trainings too, but I think their thought is this is like, if if this is the new population, there needs to be more efforts to like license and and train people who are in the nursing home industry.
0: Yeah, and the consequences of that are that the nurses aren't gonna stay. Like, Travell ultimately- totally. she quit. Yeah. yeah, she lasted about six
2: months and she left without like a two weeks notice. She was,
1: she was done. It became uh, a little too uh, dangerous for me to continue on. As far as uh, finding certain things and things uh, happening to uh, patients that I just, I just couldn't watch. The nursing patients, not the psych patients. I just no longer wanted to be a part of it.
0: It's so interesting. If we're thinking that the reason why all of this happened was the deinstitutionalizing effort, but the reason why people pushed to deinstitutionalize was because those spaces were like problematic. And so it feels like the dream of that movement was just like never realized the supported housing is sort of still what they wanted in the 60s, and yet we've not been able to figure it out in all of these decades. Yeah, and that's why we have
2: people today in, like, these—what ended up happening was people was just—were becoming institutionalized in other places.
0: Well, Ellie, thank you so much for your really incredible investigation. That's LAS reporter LEU on her investigation with APM and the California Newsroom. You can hear her full story at LAS.com. Next week on Imperfect Paradise, the first of our new series, The Castle. The story that pulls back the curtain on an exclusive, iconic LA landmark. The magic castle and efforts to confront its problematic past
1: it felt like you were back in time in a place where like almost everyone there's an older white cis heterosexual man it's their world that you're stepping into magic is still this microcosm of the world but of the world in like the 50s i think the
2: first the first 2021 the vision was not clear I was not really, like, impressed by the way we were doing things. And you know what? You don't want to implement bad ideas.
0: That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise. Listen to new episodes of the podcast every Wednesday. Or tune in on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. on Las 89.3 or com. This episode of Imperfect Paradise was reported by LEU. I'm the show's host, Antonia Cerejido, and I produced this episode with support from production coordinator Jens Campbell. Editing by LAist executive editor Megan Garvey and LEU. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show, and Shayna Naomi crockmull is our vice president of podcasts. Mixing and theme music by E. Scott Kelly. Imperfect Paradise is a production of LAist Studios. This podcast is powered by listeners like you. Support this show by donating now at LAS.com join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.
1: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.